0: Business Boring is made by the spin-off, with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound.
1: People aren't standard, yet best medical practice often has to be. Treatments for conditions and prescriptions for ailments are most often based off studies where by design they found the average need and effective dosage. But we know people are not average. There are distinct ways different bodies metabolize, for example, which means that for some, the average dose will never work because they metabolize it too fast, and others, it won't work for as they do so too slowly. Which is part of why there is now an emerging field of pharmacology that uses gene sequencing to understand how an individual's body works and then equip them and their doctors with that information and understanding to help ensure the correct prescriptions are given. It's just one of the exciting ways to put power in patients' hands that have been pioneered out of the pinnacle group of not-for-profit companies. They're a huge force in the Midlands. Its members manage the healthcare of nearly half a million people enrolled with over 80 practices in Gisborne, Taranaki, Taupo, Turangi, Thames Coromandel and the Waikato. The CEO that has driven their growth, first for the whole family of companies and very recently for their ventures arm, is John McCaskill-Smith, who is here today to talk about using business to change health, introducing the pharmacogenomics, and how you can find out more about how your body is likely to react to drugs. G'day, thanks for joining us, John. Hey, no worries. It's good to be here. Hey, So, um, tell me, how did you come to get involved uh, in this role? Wow.
2: It's a long story, but you know I'd been working in the health sector and getting more and more frustrated with uh, how the system wasn't really working that well. Uh, so I kind of jumped the fence from provider land into a funding uh, role and ended up working in a number of government agencies to, and really trying to be quite pragmatic, cut through a lot of the bureaucracy, and try and make things kind of happen on the ground. And, Uh, It was, what, 2000, I think Labour came in and um, shut down the National Health Funding Authority and moved to district health boards. And it was at that time that I I didn't really want to go into a district health board, which was quite a hospital kind of focused uh, construct. Uh, And I ended up being offered a role in a large primary care network. So I stepped into that and what I've loved about it is it's an organisation that has to deal with lots of, we've got 100 small business um, owners that we need to work with. So those are the GPs, you know, down the road who run the little clinic. But we've also got to deal with the district health boards, the hospitals, the ministry. You know, There's a couple of hundred million dollars worth of taxpayers funding that goes kind of through us. Um, and we're constantly looking at how we can innovate to keep half a million people uh, healthy, but also um, keep them well and I think the health system in New Zealand is very focused on fixing people but it's not that good at actually looking at how do we keep people well and stop them actually getting sick
1: yeah, because the, the big promise of the move to things like primary health organisations and uh, community-based kind of care was that it could be proactive rather than a reactive system. Uh, but it's taken a lot of tools and a lot of, uh, a lot of learning to get there, hasn't it? Like, What kind of things have you done with, with technology to help um, enable all of these small GP practices through those regions to be able to, um, to, to serve and kind of predict what their patients are going to need?
2: Yeah, well, look, one of the things, and you know, in health, there's there's so much data that we kind of have. And the way that we've organised the health system um, has really been around services. So, you know, you might have a sore knee, so you've got a service that focuses on that. You might have diabetes, so you've got another service that focuses on that. And the problem is most of those services have just contained and siloed off the, those pieces of information. So as, as, as people, we become kind of recorded by the bits of our body or uh, the things, that ailments that we've kind of got rather than as a total kind of person. Now, the opportunity with primary care is that general practice is often the single place in the health sector where the whole thing's taken into account. So often, you know, people are coming in, they've got family issues, they've got social issues, they've got housing issues and they've got clinical issues. And all of that information is, you know, put in a single kind of place. And one of the things that we've worked really hard to do is to say, well, how can we take that information that's often recorded in a in a kind of server in a hot water cupboard in the little local bungalow of your GP and make it available for the rest of the system to be able to interact with but also for patients to be able to have in their hands to help them self-manage because, look, let's face it, we manage our own care 99% of the time. Health services just intervene now and again. So we've spent a lot of time shifting people's health records into uh, a secure cloud environment, building open APIs, and making that information available for others to be able to access.
1: And that must be something that's becoming more important as well as for many people, especially in the bigger urban environments, they don't have a GP anymore, a family GP that's the same person that knew them and their mum and their dad and and, and looks after them through their life. Like people go to the big um, big corporate owned organisations and get whatever doctors on.
2: That's right, and and look, that's a global uh, change that's kind of happening to the way that um, primary and community care is kind of organised. There's a whole generation now that's coming through that, as you've just pointed out, don't tend to have a family GP. So as they uh, need care, they'll just purchase that care from the most convenient kind of space. And we've seen in places like um, London, for example, you know Babylon, which is an online kind of service, and it is the younger generation that are using that. So dial up a doc pay a fixed amount, do it over your smartphone and have your, you know, if you need a script or medication, have it delivered to the local pharmacy. But look, what does happen is as you age or if you develop long-term chronic kind of conditions, the numbers are really clear. That's when people want an ongoing relationship. So, you know, if you're coming back in to talk about uh, a condition that's uh, affecting your lifestyle, you want to come back and not have to tell the whole story. Yeah. Again and again, you want to be able to come back and you want to have someone who knows you, knows your kind of social setting, your family setting, those other kind of things, you know, have a massive impact on how your health is going. Um, and that's where we see the switch occurring. So just as we do in other parts of our lives, um, it's convenient to do some things online and it's uh, quicker and faster to do uh, things uh, that way uh, other times we want to go in and we want to be able to fondle something or push the buttons or test it before we kind of buy it I think health's exactly the same
1: and in terms of what you've been providing through the pinnacle group to those GPS and to those health practices you've been enabling a lot of them to bring in some of those virtual elements of uh, care haven't you the the phone calls the skypes the kind of the digital rather than the in-person checkups
2: yeah well look for us you know we cover that middle part of the North island and you know we We've got more people uh, living in small communities of 10,000 people or less. And, of course, what we've seen in that kind of out, out of the larger urban areas, we've seen this real withdrawal of uh, face-to-face kind of services. We've also seen a real change in our workforce. So, you know, we've got an ageing workforce. Our GPs, our average age is in the late 50s, early 60s. So it's harder for people in those rural communities to be able to even access care. So we've had to have stepped in and started to look at what those virtual kind of services could be and how they could work. But, you know, if you're a busy farmer and you're in the middle of calving, um, are you really going to stop and go in with a minor ailment? But if you can drop an email, snap a photo, flick that into your doctor and say, do I need to worry about that? That's great mm. for the individual. And it actually works really well for the doc as well because a lot of those things don't need someone in the clinic clogging up a, um, a consult.
1: Yeah, and it's really hard, isn't it, especially in those... Um, Areas where the population is aging and it's hard to attract uh, doctors. How do services like the things that you have built to make it? A bit easier, how does that help people kind of keep managing it as well? Well, you know, there's a couple of things on that
2: front. It's yeah, Helping people stay at home is really important and, and sometimes having um, uh, access to your own health record so that you can, uh, you know, dial up the information around your medications and query it against other things online has become really important. We're currently working on some stuff where we're using um, voice technology to enable people to interact with their health record uh, using like the Alexas or the Google Homes to check their medication order repeat scripts or, or even make uh, you know appointments you know and those kind of things are reducing some of the technology barriers for people who can't navigate or aren't comfortable navigating their way around a sort of complex health electronic system they can just talk to it and say hey alexa mm-hmm. when am i next due to take medication and what is it
1: yeah, and and do they then also um, does Alexa say take it now and then I'll tell you you've done it so you know you've done it that day as well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, absolutely, and sometimes yeah. it's that prompting. You know, if you've got ongoing uh, lifestyle based diseases, diabetes is a good one. Sometimes you do need that prompting around diet and other those things and those reminders, and particularly for um, elderly uh, people who are starting to get a little bit forgetful about those kind of things, having those prompts, you know, is proving to be really useful.
1: And in, as part of that mix like so, so this is stuff that you've over the last um, 15 kind of years in, in that space uh, brought in a lot of those things in the cloud uh, giving people access to their, their medical uh, records which I mean I didn't know that was so um, available but you've got half a million people who've got the option to log in and see their medical records in those areas, is that right?
2: Yeah that's, that's absolutely correct and look the really interesting thing in here, the barrier to it's not the patients, the barrier to it is typically the providers. So you've got um, you know, doctors and nurses or, or um, service providers who are anxious about opening up their records. And and I say their records because that's often how they view them, as opposed to the view that we've really taken is that actually they're your records and someone's provided some support to you in managing your own care. So uh, they should be available to everyone and you should be able to query them. And, you know, as we've opened them up, there's been concerns from a lot of providers that, you know, People are just going to bombard them with questions. People are going to use that information to kind of Google their own health and take them off. That just hasn't happened. You know, I can count on you know a couple of hands the the issues that have arisen. And most of those issues that have arisen have been people saying that didn't happen to me, but it's in my record. I think you've got that wrong, or you've missed this. You know, so I think that's a great process to go through. And, And the providers that have adopted it, once they get over that initial hump of fear. Are actually found, finding it. It's a great tool to have in the box to help them work with patients.
1: Yeah, Doctor Google has been uh, a big uh, a big worry for for the for the industry in lots of ways. But I think, and it, it seems very much to be the kind of model you take that uh, you, you know it's always going to be the role of a doctor or, you know, a medical professional to be able to help contextualise all of the information that people have. And so the stuff they've Googled online where everything seems to be fatal, doesn't matter what your symptoms are, you know, to to be able to put that in in context for people. And so I suppose that's part also of the um, having more ways that people can contact and not just that wait until you're you're, uh, in a serious enough predicament to come into a practice.
2: That's right. So you can be much more proactive. And I think the other thing we're seeing is a lot more people are using apps to help keep well. So we've got the whole fitness kind of craze. We've got the dieting uh, kind of. Uh, uh, I won't say it's a craze but you know the the people are using those kind of apps to help them to keep on track tracking their calorie intake tracking the amount of fitness they're doing to kind of contribute to that and so we've got the wearables that are kind of coming in uh, uh, we've got those apps that are kind of coming in and people are subscribing to those things and actually starting to spend big money if you add that up Often more money in that end of the thing than they are in actually engaging with the health sector, so the health sector needs to work out how it can partner with that part of the uh, I guess the uh, environment to bring uh, you know that specialized knowledge and intervention in so that it's more useful rather than it being a separate thing that you only access when you're really sick. Mm-hmm.
1: And that, that brings us quite nicely to, you, you know, what you've been, uh, as, you know, something that you're pioneering here, the, the latest in the long line of things with the pharmacogenomics. Hey, so, so that's really putting the power in the patient's hands, isn't it? If you're helping to enable people to, to sequence part of their DNA to find out how their bodies work. Tell us, tell us about what, what the idea is there.
2: Well, look, the idea is that we're all unique none of us are the same and we're a combination of our parents, uh, you know at, 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 I guess uh, at a genetic kind of level and then you know the rest of it's our social kind of setting and all of those things what we eat, how, we, how much we exercise, whether we smoke, whether we do other things, they all contribute to how we kind of come together. but traditionally the health sectors used, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, uh, a pretty blunt approach to testing stuff. So we've had clinical trials and a clinical trial trial usually results in a bell curve of response and that bell curve is really about the people that have been involved in that trial and how people have responded to that and the assumption that everyone's kind of fits into that average bell curve and so the dosage, you know, starting dosage for medications or even the medications we use to treat particular disease or uh, issues is based on those um, those, uh, traditional kind of approaches what that misses out is the fact that often we're not not all in that bell curve. So, if there's only been three or four thousand people involved and they all live in Europe, they're very different from two or three thousand people who live here in New Zealand. So, um, pharmagenomics gives us the opportunity to actually use individualized um, uh, insights into how we individually metabolize different kinds of compounds. And um, Uh, to prescribe more precisely. So it's really about the introduction of precision medicine. So how can we move away from the generic and start to move to the precise?
1: And that idea about not being represented there, is that that different communities have different uh, general patterns of how their bodies might metabolise or might uh, interact with certain kind of uh, drugs? Absolutely, it means
2: that. And look, the easiest way to kind of get your head around that is to think about caffeine. So, you know, we all know, uh, we've all got friends who, if they sniff caffeine, they're just awake for a week. And we have other people that just seem to have a backpack, uh, they just suck it nonstop all day. And it doesn't seem to have any impact. You know, they they have it as they go to bed. You know, that's a really good day to day example of how different bodies metabolise different compounds differently. So, uh, you know, if people are metabolising it really quickly or really slowly, it has a different kind of
1: impact. yeah. And how about a place like New Zealand, uh, with a large Pacific Island population, Māori population, would people of those backgrounds be appearing in the places where these drugs were originally trialled? In uh, short,
2: sure, no. Um, and what we do know from the evidence base that we've got at the moment is that a lot of those different ethnic groups that you're mentioning do metabolise uh, different types of medications uh, quite differently. So, you know... Um, Uh, uh, For example, very, very common uh, medications used to manage blood pressure and and diabetes uh, have very little uh, impact um, for some of those ethnic groups. And so what we end up happening is that doctors are using the clinical information they have, the prescribing information, and often they're increasing dosages of medications to try and get the response that they uh, are expecting to get from that kind of um, intervention. Without the understanding, actually, it doesn't matter how high you make that dose, that individual's a non-responder to that particular medication. So particularly for Māori and Pacific, that's something that we need to understand better. Now, the evidence base that's there around ph- um, pharmacogenomics is very, very strong, but it's, it's lacking some of um, the data and evidence from s- some particular ethnic kind of groups, in particular Māori and Pacific. So part of what we're doing here is working with Otago and Auckland University uh, health uh, um, uh, and some other key national uh, and regional iwi groups to to try and bring in a better understanding of, in particular, the Māori genome. So this kind of program is, you know, going to significantly
1: contribute to that information base. And so, how does that actually work? So you have you partnered up with an international uh, agency that can take take a sample and give people the information walk us through that process. Yeah, well, so here's the puzzle. If you're a dairy
2: cow in New Zealand, you can have your whole genome processed real quick for almost no cost. So the the National Dairy Herds managed using genomics. So the whole breeding programme, the thing's fascinating. I got stuck in a tent on a school camp between two of the LIC executives, and I can tell you all about Mary Bell and all her offspring.
1: I mean, and anyone who's seen A2 Milk, that's the very um, consumer-facing end of that research. That's right, that's right. Um, So look, the process um, uh, is
2: complex in New Zealand because we have no um, labs in New Zealand that are actually certified to process Uh, commercially human DNA so at the moment any uh, of that work is either being done in small one certified um, university labs for research um, things or we have to go offshore and this is where it gets really interesting because you know online there's over 600 direct to consumer kind of options in which you could you could dial into you know have a a kit and either send blood or a a, a saliva or a cheek swab back to one of these offshore companies and in return they'll send you a series of reports. And there's a spectrum of those reports. So some of them are at the kind of wooey end, they're kind of pretty soft evidence, but they kind of appear glamorous. Uh, At the other end, uh, they're they're much more Scientific, So, you know, particularly the pharma genomic um, kind of end. There's also been some of the high profile stuff where people have um, used genetic screening uh, in a predictive way to look at, you know, the the likelihood of developing things like breast cancer and others. There's been actors that have, you know, made pretty big choices about managing that risk. What's common with most of those on, online companies is that you give away your personal DNA. So you send it off, you get a report back that gives you whatever you thought you were buying. But what then happens to your DNA is kind of pretty vague. And many countries actually don't have any legislation or protection around that. But look, back to your question, what happens? How do you do it? So look, we, we've gone for a uh, cheek swab. So essentially your GP, or you could choose to do it yourself directly online, can order up a kit. The kit um, is then you scrape the inside of your cheek, shove that in a secure little capsule and post that off. It goes to a laboratory in Melbourne um, and that is processed. It takes about between 5 and 10 days depending on post and you know other exciting things that can happen in between. And then um, a report is produced. Now that report, uh, if it's a medication or the PGX-based report, is sent back to your doctor or to one of our doctors who will then contact you and have a virtual consultation with you and walk you through the results.
1: Right, right so that's different than the you know the well known ones are probably the 23 and me or the ancestry ones that people have done where you get a you get a cool pdf back but you don't actually get a medical professional to help contextualize it for you if you have yeah they they specifically dropped a lot of what you're trying to do around how bodies metabolize for drugs
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. And I think, you know, a lot of those companies have gone on to then sell your DNA to pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, insurance providers and other kind of things. And, you know, in the States, we've seen some legislation come through that's kind of halted some of that sort of uncontrolled use of uh, uh, DNA. Um, so I guess what we've tried to do in New Zealand is, is twofold. One, um, you know, as consumers, it's a global market that we operate in. So the internet provides us with direct access to any product anywhere. So that's just a reality that we need to deal with. Secondly, we've got, you know, our GP or our clinical community in New Zealand's not well trained in the use of genetics. It's, it's new and emerging. You go to the med schools, it's, it's a very tiny part of the training that a, that a medic kind of goes through. You know, we sit down with the groups of our GPs, they always split in to two. Half of the room just looks bored, their eyes roll back and it's like, "This is a Star Trek conversation. It's not happening in my lifetime. The other half tend to look um, um, a little uncomfortable and sweaty and then you know, acknowledge in the end that they know that it's there, but they know that they don't know enough. So we're trying to prepare our clinical workforce so that when patients do come in, with the, the the documents and the Twenty Three and Me um, kind of things that one, they know what it is. Two, they know um, how to read and understand that. But also three, they've got kind of a trusted, credible, signed off alternative to that. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to put on on the table a kind of understood version of that. So, you know, things that we've worked really hard on is it's your genetic information, it's your DNA, so it should be stored in your health record, not in some offshore um, mass database that's used for other purposes. If you consent to, you know, contributing your DNA to um, some research, you should know what that research is and you should get feedback on that. So certainly that's the relationship that we've developed with the, you know, the med schools and, and others to enable that to occur. But it, it's a consented kind of process. Um, so, yeah, we're trying to train our workforce so that they know um, how to respond to the information and how to use it. We're trying to um, assure New Zealanders that actually if you use a trusted process like this, your information will be stuck back in your health record. It's then protected by the legislation that sits around health information in New Zealand. Um, And uh, thirdly, if it's going to be used for research, you need to be involved in that kind of conversation.
1: Yeah, that those questions around data and consent are really interesting. I listened to a, an interesting talk with um, the CEO at Twenty Three and Me, uh, and you know, th- all of these companies have been kind of lumped in together with the cases, uh, which wasn't through Twenty Three and Me, but of a, a killer being court because of maternal um, DNA being tracked through and then identifying a person um, from 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 a DNA database. Um, but she made the point that was really interesting that a lot of people who do have um, especially kind of uh, genetic-based or other forms of very serious illnesses, they want to be part of research. They want their DNA to go into these things. So uh, there, there are some people who the, the privacy is very important, but of course some people where help, helping to um, forge new research is of real interest to them.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. But it should be a choice that you've got. It shouldn't be something that an organisation is kind of doing in the background, often without you know, your full understanding about it. And, and I think the, the, the challenge that we can see is that often New Zealand um, you know, is out of a lot of those big research things. I mean, you raised it before, um, you know, Maori and Pacific genetic information, there's not enough that's understood about that. Um, there's some real cultural concerns around um, you know, how that information is used. We've seen previously in New Zealand genetic material that's been gathered through crime scenes. Uh, gathered together and I don't know whether you remember a few years ago there was a whole thing about the Maori warrior gene that kind of blew up out of some you know pretty dodgy research really. Uh, uh, genetic material that was gathered from singular kind of places, no consent and then all kinds of um, strange claims that were made about that. So we wanted to make Uh, Sure that uh, New Zealanders can feel confident if they're going to use a service like this. But look, the other thing that we're trying to do is the test that we um, are looking at at making available is an enduring test. So it it pulls out and identifies a number of your genes. And then as the evidence base will continue to grow around how um, different medications respond to your particular gene kind of combination, that information can be used again and again and again. So those biomarkers, we're looking at embedding that in your health record so that now and into the future, any clinician who's using your health record and writing a script, those biomarkers will prompt That script writing. So even if the clinician themselves isn't um, completely aware of it, one of the things we're doing is building an electronic clinical decision support tool that will prompt them and say, you know, hey, Simon's got this particular marker. He's an ultra-rapid metabolizer for this. So the starting dose of warfarin needs to be adjusted to this to avoid an adverse kind of reaction occurring. So we think that's pretty pretty important and it's pretty amazing. The cost of the test is pretty small. It's enduring, so it's life um, um, lasting. It lasts your whole life. And as the evidence grows, it's just going to become more and more kind of powerful.
1: It's interesting, John, you mentioned the cost as well because Mm. that's become one of the great kind of uh, inequalities of modern medicine where so much of um, the really interesting and exciting stuff is not available to the people that need it the most Uh, people who are battling serious health issues often are having financial issues at the same time as a result or they could be in systems where um uh, insurance is required to access this stuff. What are you able to do, uh, and what kind of work are, are you doing through our, our um, great kind of socialized system of medicine <laughs> to mean to mean that this isn't a, 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 a problem that you're facing? Yeah, look,
2: that's a that's a fantastic question because I think you know some of the criticism that we've had thrown at us at us is, is oh, this is another kind of service for the wealthy, and I think yeah, the, you know the cost of these kinds of tests in the past have been really kind of prohibitive. Um, The cost of the test now is getting lower and lower. And um, depending on how many people are going to go through a kind of program, I mean, it's less than $100 now, whereas years ago it was, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. Um, You know, we're really lucky in New Zealand that we've got a, you know, largely taxpayer-funded health system. The problem is with it, as I said before, you know, 90% of the funds really go into acute care after you're sick and after the fact. Somehow, we need to get the politicians and the, the bureaucrats to understand that we need a bigger investment kind of up front. Now, we already have screening programs that, uh, you know, uh, test for particular um, things uh, when children are born and other things. You know, the cost of undertaking uh, something like a pharmacogenomic test and, and sticking those biomarkers in um, an individual's health record could be as low as $20. Now, I don't think that's a prohibitive cost for the sector think about. If you think about the savings in adverse – reduction in adverse reactions, savings in, um, you know, um, misprescribing. So, you know, uh, uh, as people are prescribing, um, doctors are fumbling around trying to get the dosages right. Uh, prescription of medications that you know, people are non-responders to, um, uh, all of those kind of things, you add up the cost of that compared to that kind of cost as an intervention. So look, one of the things that we're doing, we're lucky enough that we're working with Callaghan um, Innovation, so they've recognised that there's an opportunity here uh, for New Zealand Inc., but also kind of globally, because this is the first time that this is happening anywhere in the world where we're taking a, a pharma panel, we're taking those biomarkers and we're sticking it in someone's health record in primary care. So you see places like the Mayo Clinic in the States, as you're admitted, they run the same panel that we're running, but that's to do with people in that hospital environment. No one else is doing it in primary care. And so Callahan have recognised as an opportunity to, to really test the impact of that, but also to look at um, the impact and the commercials around having the electronic clinical decision tool um, there to support prescribers as they write the script.
1: Yeah tell me how that works so would that, would that literally be kind of a list of all the things that are um, commonly prescribed in New Zealand and how they react compared to the way that these bodies metabolise as you found out through this test and then you just bung in the the markers, bung in the um, thing you want to prescribe and then get told use more or less or maybe try this other one.
2: You make it sound so
1: simple, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that sounds pretty cool and like it has some pretty big – international applicability? Well it does and look there's international um,
2: guidelines and research that you know being public, uh, publicised you know the FDA and the states require that all medication now has biomarker information within its prescribing information um, in New Zealand that's not purchased currently through the government so medications are not required if there is biomarker information to for that to be available so things like the New Zealand formulary which you know is where most uh, prescribing medics will go to uh, understand uh, New Zealand meds and you know, how they operate and how they're funded won't have that information. So at the moment we're having to consume that international information. But you know, even this project has triggered a conversation with the New Zealand Formula around actually maybe we do need to publish those kind of biomarkers.
1: And in terms of the way that you're set up to run as well, because some of the big questions around... Um, this, you know, truly exciting and, you know, revolutionary field of medicine, they often come back to kind of uh, whether people will be excluded, you know, if they are um, tested at birth and it turns out that there's um, likely to be uh, long-term health issues, whether they'll be excluded from insurance or whether they'll be um, treated as having less potential in life. You know, there's there's those big kind of questions around genes. But there's also such a, an inability to, to cause so much good from it. How are we going with keeping up with... um with, with legislation and the like? Because like, I think America's a little bit further ahead in not being able to discriminate on the basis of the findings of these surveys. Yeah, so look, I think there's t- two issues in what you
2: asked. Firstly, yes, you're right. With the bigger whole genome and um, screening for potential disease development, there's a whole lot of uh, consequences. In New Zealand we haven't had that social debate, there's not the rules in place. So what you know, the test that we're running is a very small subset, so we're pulling you know, uh, nine kind of genes to look at how you metabolise uh, um, drugs, um, we're not pulling the broader set because we just don't think the rule set's in place for that to be useful. Uh, and, and, and in some cases, it could actually be discriminatory. So we're not going there. But it will have to happen. So hopefully this will trigger some of those discussions and debates um, um, to take place.
1: How interesting. So you're being very focused on just things that have a direct use for patients rather than things that could end up, as you say, because it's an enduring test, uh, could end up counting against them.
2: Well, that's right. And, I mean, we're just looking at how you metabolise different um, you know, uh, compounds and we're embedding that information in your health record. You know, it's a real practical response. You know, it, 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 General practice in primary care, we're not at the big research end. Yes, we'll um, partake in that kind of stuff, but we're the ones that are on the ground working with patients and family every day. So we need quick, uh, useful kind of tools and information that we can just apply. Um, So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to mainstream the, the massively positive impact of precise medication information to make sure that we can prescribe the right things quicker, get uh, better health outcomes quicker at lower cost and avoid adverse
1: reactions. In terms of your model at Pinnacle, which is a really interesting one because it's not for profit, but it does have profit-making engines to then fund more of the other things you do how cool is it to be able to like be pioneering research like this and if it does take off and become something that um you, you know is is uh, adopted across the world what would that then enable you to be able to do more of
2: well more of this exciting researchy kind of stuff you know we started off talking about models of care and using technology and all those kind of things look you know, unfortunately, you know, as good as the New Zealand health system is, it's stuck in a in a sickness model. And, you know, it's going broke trying to maintain that. You only have to open one of the mainstream media uh, things to see just how big a um, uh, deficit the district health boards are carrying. You know, the leadership that sits within the New Zealand health sector is very focused on running hospitals. It's not focused on really understanding how to intervene. Uh, you, you see people like John Tamahiri and others with the whana aura trying to get that more holistic kind of integrated Kind of approach. So for pinnacle, um, you know th- these kinds of um, uh, you know getting these kind of things right will help us to be able to investigate and and invest in more um, kind of different kind of interventions to help um, patients have more control of their, their their health and their lives.
1: What advice do you give to entrepreneurs or people wanting to shake things up? Because I imagine you know um, fifteen odd years ago when you uh, jumped into helping run kind of an agency that was bringing together GPs in um, kind of provincial areas of New Zealand, people wouldn't have looked at it and gone, now there's a place where the biggest innovation in primary healthcare and uh, pharma uh, genetic kind of sequencing and the like is going to come from. So you've driven a huge amount of innovation. How are you able to foster a culture of innovation wherever and whatever work you're doing? Look, I think
2: there's been a number of things that have been really uh, great and have kept me going. I I think actually regional New Zealand's got some secrets that, um, you know, what's happening in terms of changes in society are often happening quicker. Uh, in some of the regional kind of areas. You know, the, the, the kind of urban retreat, so the withdrawal of services have meant that some of the innovations that we've brought on, the virtual stuff that we talked about at the fast, we had to do it because we had no alternative. Our workforce was disappearing in a way that it's not disappearing in the urban kind of setting. So often what you see with you know medical provision in urban areas, it's very traditional because there's nothing really to challenge it to change. So operating in the Midland regional um, kind of area, we've seen withdrawal of workforce, we've seen withdrawal of services Um, that's been a great driver but we've also seen um, people tend to stay in those communities for longer they're not as transient so there's some real long lifelong relationships that have kind of been there and the organization itself is kind of you know, it survived every three-letter acronym that a government could throw at a health sector. So RHAs, HFAs, you know, DHBs, PHOs, IPAs, you name it, we've ridden it out. We just roll the flag up and down depending on what's required. So the organisation has a long-term vision about sustaining high-quality community-based care. Um, So for me, uh, I would say You've got to do some time in the agencies. You need to understand the ministries and, you know, the bureaucracy. But if you really want to drive that change, you need to get outside of those systems because those systems are very constrained and very focused on containment um, and find people that you can partner with. The thing that we've found most recently in the ventures part is that we're starting to actually partner up with very, very untraditional partners, you know, Having a really interesting conversation with the likes of the warehouse group about how um, retail and health could come together in a more, uh, uh, you know, uh, entangled or converged kind of way. Because as consumers, that's where a lot of the action happens rather than siloed kind of sectors. The health sector's not having those conversations, it just talks to itself about how to build a bigger hospital.
1: How fascinating. And and having. um you know, driven a lot of innovation and pioneered a lot of cool things here, and, and being on the cusp of some really exciting stuff with um with with gene gene work. Um, how do you define success? Like, what what would be kind of you know the best outcome in, in ten years time for Pinnacle Ventures?
2: Oh, look for Pinnacle Ventures, I think that it's you know we've continued to grow a vibrant uh, uh, health system that sits out of the hospital, so primary and community care is working. And uh, people can access the care that they want, you know, virtually online in different kind of settings, and and it's sustainable because what we see at the moment is traditional general practice, traditional health service provision isn't sustainable. It's got to change. So a big outcome would be that sustainability. Obviously, health outcome needs to get better. So we're adopting and using the technologies that are kind of available there. And look at a personal level, you know, the last fifteen years, I've got out of bed every morning, going right. I'm excited about about it so you know i'd like to think i've still got that kind of excitement and getting out of bed that that to me you know life is about and to be there it's there to be enjoyed uh and so you know it's been a real privilege to have a a career or a job or a place that i really enjoy it really engages and um you know i think i'm making a bit of a difference
1: Ah, wonderful. Well, thank you for coming and sharing the story today, John McCaskill-Smith, who's the CEO of Pinnacle Ventures, who, if you're listening and you're interested, you can find online. Thanks so much. No worries. Thank you. Hey, and thank you so much, Tina Tiller, for producing, and thank you very much for listening. If you have enjoyed today, please do jump on iTunes and like and subscribe, as it does help. Thanks so much.
0: Bye. You all have been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. Brought to you by The Spinoff and Callaghan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by Sparklab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on Sparklab, visit sparklab.co.nz.